Thank you so much for dedicating our time together to Fran. As among other things, I think we're dedicating it to our living earth, which is what we are. This is an, being an amazing day for me. Uh, I'm on a very steep learning curve, like every minute, getting used to uh, the way he, where he is now. I'm so filled with gratitude for all that we had. I was saying at lunch to Matt and Julie that uh, it's been incredible for my family, you know. I live with my children and grandchildren around me, and we thought we were very close, but this has just fused us. And everybody's taken part in every step of it, bringing his body back and washing it and anointing it and putting candles and flowers and music, and it's been amazing. But coming back from the burial yesterday, I said to my grandson, I just, you know, I really wish that Opa, they call him Opa, would, uh, you know, I heard just, would just appear to me like a glowing golden light in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I haven't seen that. And Julian, who's 11, said, oh, well, he's come to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I, he said, in my dreams. <clears throat> First dream, which he'd already told us, was that he's got it, that when you die, the spirit leaves the body and is free. He said, I could see the spirit look like a little sketch, so a little barely visible. And it went around into all things, and it took, went into an alligator. <laughs> no, <I don't>. uh, <clears throat> and then, um, but he said, he's been, but this was when yesterday he told me, he said, well, he keeps coming in my dreams. And I said, what does he say? And he just looked at me, and he said, he reassures me. <laughs> he reassures me. And he's taken to wearing Fran's wedding ring around his neck on a string. Nobody, he didn't ask my permission or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so he walks around very tall. <laughs> he touches it. <laughs> so then his cousins, two girls who were, were there the whole time, they thought they wanted something of his, their opa to wear. So that's what we were doing last night. Mm -hmm. So uh, Francis, uh, he was very pleased to carry the name of Il Poverello, mm -hmm. St. Francis. He rather referred more often to 
François Ier, who had a certain style that you can't say that Saint Francis was a man of style. But <laughs> Fran Macy was, don't you? Yes, of course. But what I, I want to tell you a story, it just came to me that I want to tell you <clears throat> uh, about uh, going to Assisi. We went three times between uh, over a span of six years to do a whole week with the work that reconnects. That's the name of the uh, experiential group work uh, that we lead and, and share, also known as despair and empowerment work, also known as deep ecology work. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> My friend Stefan, who is uh, from Germany and was a Franciscan seminarian, uh, said, Joanna, we've been noticing you draw the spiritual roots of this work that reconnects, which is so important for our time, and what you identify as Buddhist. But <clears throat> most of the people in the Western world are not Buddhist. And we have a a Christian, a majority, we have a bodhisattva in Christianity. We've got Francis. And uh, can we not bring him forward more in the work? So that led to uh, the first of the weeks in Assisi. And we were about 30 people there, 30, between 30 and 40. And we met for a week in. Uh, the old city inside the walls in a uh, wonderful old house that was like five centuries old at least, very kept up beautifully. And we were given not only rooms to sleep in there, but a large uh, room about a quarter of size of this space with thick, thick walls. And you could step up into the windows and uh, look out. And it was exquisitely... Uh, furnished in, in uh, stone of, of marble and inset stones. And, and we had, <clears throat> uh, we're sitting in cushions in a very large circle. And we went through uh, the work that reconnects. And we uh, pointed out, see, my, we, I led it with my friend Stefan, who had been the seminary. And he spent most of his teens and 20s in Assisi, though he's from Germany. And uh, he even looks like Francis, I mean, and, and he sings like Francis. And <clears throat> so we saw that at the end of the 20th century, I had great similarities to St. Francis' time. Uh, that was uh, the beginning of the money economy. So economically, it was very interesting. His father was a rich clothier merchant. And so there was the beginning of the accrual of capital. And Francis could have whatever he wanted. He was a dandy. And remember how he loved just to look great. And sort of like Fran, you know. <laughs> and uh, that, so there was that. We played with that theme and looked at 
what money had become for people. So it was the economic. And then we looked at uh, what the war had done to Francis. Uh, he had engaged in it, a campaign against Perugia. He had been uh, cast into, taken as a prisoner of war. How long was he? A year or several months? I think it was like that. I think a little less than a year. Hmm? I think a little less than yeah. a year. Mm -hmm. But it, uh, he was never the same mm -hmm. after that. Uh, the, the, it brought right up in front of his full consciousness the uh, brutality and insanity of war. And that was uh, quite a shake, too, because he had, had been very proud of his armor. He had gotten him somebody to help equip him in the latest and to ride off and then to just see that this was utter rot. And then we looked at how we be with poverty and disease. And uh, we, how he embraced uh, lady poverty and the freedom he found in not being dependent on stuff. And he took that to some extremes, but it was free. He was a very free spirit, and he manifested this in, in, in his singing and his laughter. And then how he, the theme of the uh, mending, the great rips in culture that come up between us and those that we despise. And in that time, the worst of the worst outcasts, you will recall, were the lepers. And the, there's a lepers around, Assisi is around the same, and they would, he was almost phobic about them. And they were made to ring a wooden bell to, so that people could get out of the way. Wasn't that true? Mm -hmm. And then there was the moment when, in this tremendous turning he went through, uh, the moment when he uh, really got it, that his true identity, the true song that wanted to be sung through him, could not be in any way identified with the place in society, with means, with privilege. And he, the very one that he couldn't even bear to look at before, he got off his horse and kissed the leper on the lips. And what a huge declaration of freedom that was. Like that when he was allowing himself to see the world, as, see, as Jennifer was saying, the, the world that begs for our attention, and it caught his attention, and he could see it. And, and the love that swelled up that we were feeling right here as it was singing out of you, you know, uh, couldn't be uh, stopped up. And he kissed the leper. And it burst forth from him and his a love for all beings. And when he couldn't limit it to the privilege or even the human. And that great canticle to the sun and the moon, to the wind and the fire, and all the great miracle of our existence on this planet just erupted in him and 
So endless praise. Nothing divided him anymore from, closed him out from the miracle, the basic miracle of our existence. So this was, and we would go down to the where he had his different experiences in his life, like at San Damiano. Some of our classes or gatherings were held in the olive groves just above San Damiano, which was the church that he got the orders to repair when he had his one of his many mystical experiences. I mean, for him, the sacred broke loose. You couldn't limit the sacred to any place, person, or even creed. In the, in the Crusades, he went to the Sultan, uh, and he was then in Constantinople. No, not in Constantinople, cool. outside of Egypt. But at any rate. So during this week, what I'm coming to is that everybody was sort of bathing in the wonderfulness of finally feeling good about Christianity because uh, there in Europe uh, there were a few other Americans but most everyone there was European and uh, the rupture from the disappointment in Christianity is felt very keenly in Europe and um, so there was ah you know oh how good it is and and it was almost like we were avoiding, skirting around the wounds that had been inflicted by the ecclesiastical organization, by this patriarchal institution. Well, key in the work that reconnects is uh, facing our grief and owning it. You know, we called it despair work, of being able to honor our pain for the world and its beings. So Stefan and others who were co-leading with me said, what are we going to do about despair work over Christianity? <laughs> and I said, I don't know, but it's going to come. Just what? Well, wait, it'll, it'll show up. And it did. This is what I want to tell you. <laughs> So, um, it happened in the middle of the week. After lunch, it hit me. Light bulb went on. I gathered Stefan and Seto, Marlisa, and we, I said, what we do, because everybody took a siesta, so the larger gathering was busy eating and sleeping. And uh, we went... What we said, we're going to do a tribunal of institutionalized religion. <laughs> so this is what I want to describe to you. <laughs> it was in this room. So I said, we need some chairs. So we went racing around back into storerooms of this place that had been there for centuries. And we found five chairs, five or six chairs that looked almost very something you'd have behind the altar, very bishop-like, narrow, uncomfortable, hard. And, and we put them in the middle of the room, facing out. See, I was a little influenced by the Council of All Beings. Mm -hmm. And then I said, now 
we got to find something that we can use as surplus. Surplus. Mm -hmm. uh, so we found that in, in Italy they have had then, well, it's not very long ago, 10 years ago, these towels, you know, that don't really blot. They're kind of just linen. <laughs> and we found a lot of them, and we smoothed them out, and we folded them over each chair. And uh, Stefan got his didgeridoo uh, because we wanted a sound that came from the belly of the earth. And then people came in. And they walked in and took their place in the big circle. They were sort of eyeing what's in the middle of the room. And then I explained, we are here, brothers and sisters, to create and conduct a tribunal, a people's tribunal of the institutionalized church or any ecclesiastic or religious institution in the patriarchal era. And these chairs in the center, they represent the clergy. And when you go, because everybody here is going to be in both roles, because the church, the patriarchal institutions that we have tolerated for centuries, there's a little codependency there that's arisen. <laughs> and so this is not going to be blaming something that we have not been accomplice to. This is we'll own our complicity, among other things. And, and so we will start out uh, the, with the didgeridoo, and then uh, spontaneously, when you feel ready, you will stand and address the clergy, the hierarchs, the ecclesiastical. <laughs> and <clears throat> but you will, five of you will always be in there. So let's have five go in right now. Okay. And you don't talk. For once, you listen. <laughs> <laughs> and so I direct them, they sat down and they took the towels and they put them over there. Yeah, it's like this. And, um, and so then we proceeded. We had the didgeridoo. <clears throat> I said, venerable, uh, wise administrators of organized religion, <laughs> uh, we, you are on trial. And we, the people, are conducting this tribunal for your healing and cleansing and for our own. And so when we're ready, anybody in the larger circle will stand and say who you are and who's on, on whose behalf you speak and tell them. So that's what people did. And it was one of the most electric and moving experiences of my life as the men and women stood Ich bin die Margarete. I am Margaret. And my mother, I saw her die in childbirth because you would not allow her 
contraception or even information about birth control. Then there was some, some echo we all made. Yeah, we said, yes, it was mostly in German. Yeah, so I said, indeed it is so. Hmm. Say it. Indeed it is so. Yeah. So one after another would stand. I do community work. I, I am Vim. I do community work in Africa for all these years. And so I want to speak for the African people south of the Sahara. You sent your missionaries. And the price of what they brought us was our pride, was our identity. And he went on to tell from his, from speaking for the Africans, the native peoples, what had been taken for them in the name, what they traded for allowing the missionaries to come in. And then with the echo, Indeed, it is so. And then every little while, there would be, uh, I'd nudge Stefan, and he'd blow the didgeridoo, and there'd be a changing of the guard. And those who were in the middle came to sit on the outside, and others would go in so that everyone had the experience of not only saying, I accuse, but hearing that they, because if it is true that we are not separate, then those whom we have allowed to visit destruction upon the living world and our spirits, they're not separate from us either. And that there is a healing, if we're going to step across some line of deep internalized shame and blame, if we're going to step, it will, we will have to be when we're not afraid and can own, own all that is, all that's been done. So that within us, each one of us, the perpetrator and the victim can embrace each other. And that's not by arguing, you did this and you were there and I tried and you did. It's, it's, not, it's beyond the words. It's beyond any list of grievances. It's only letting a cry come and having that cry heard. Of course, we have seen how this has worked in Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. It's not you finding out who's more to blame and who's right and who's wrong. It's not that. It's being having the courage to speak and the courage to hear. It's astonishingly, astonishingly simple. And then there was the moment I found myself standing like this. And I said to the church, Oh, I want to tell you first that the church wasn't just the Christian church. It was the people who stood were addressing all those who had claimed that ultimate power to mediate spiritual truths and salvation. 
I mean, talk about audacity. <laughs> but there's that's this. And so, at any rate, I stood and I said, my name is Joanna and I'm speaking for myself. I loved the church. I loved God. I loved Jesus. And I had such passion in me to sing and speak the sacredness that I felt in you and the words and the message. I wanted so much to step out in that role and it never even occurred to me to become a minister. I was Presbyterian. It didn't even occur to me. So I didn't say, oh, I wish I could be a minister, but they won't. I was so brainwashed that it, I was, my mind itself had been shrunken around any sense of who I could be. So all this was tumbling out, and I didn't know where it was going. And then I heard myself say to them in a kind of triumphant, oh, I said, and you know what? I am a minister. I am a minister and a priestess for earth. They sat there. And then there was a moment... Uh, I'll not forget when fine Stefan himself stood, I wondered, and he was just trembling. He said, Ich bin der Stefan und ich spreche für mich selbst. I am Stephen, I'm speaking for myself. He said, oh, I loved you. And I love Francis, they call Franciscus. I love, and I saw songs, and these, each, the stones of Assisi. And what you, the hierarchy, have done to the message. You have taken the words and the message of Ipavorello, of Francis, and you built places from which you can rule and decree. So he sat down. Then he stood up again. And he said, I'm not finished. <laughs> I am Stefan. Und ich spreche für Jesus. I am speaking for Jesus. I had a fire of love and beauty and a sense of the flaming reality the sacredness of life. And some of my teachings still come through, but you, you, oh boy, it was what the contempt that was dripping <laughs> from this. What you have done. Just a minute, wait, it's coming to me. I'm remembering how it ended. 
one after another began to say words that to the effect of, look at you, you're just twerps. <laughs> the power that you have, we have given you. We ceded it to you. Nobody should have that kind of power. We won't give that kind of power to anybody. We saw what happened when we gave it to Hitler in our country. The power must stay where it belongs in every single one of us. And so we invited those who were representing the church to step back and join us all. And the didgeridoo played on and on. I've never told that or written that ritual before. But Fran and I have talked about it and we've thought how great it would do, you know, to imagine doing it with other bodies to whom we have ceded power. <laughs> and see that they're a little sort of like the Wizard of Oz, you know, pull the mask away. Let Toto pull the <coughs> curtain back. <laughs> and see that it's just a lot of bells and pulleys and <laughs> guys who hardly know what they're doing. Mm. And that if we have the uh, courage and audacity to uh, take it back where it belongs, nobody to whom we give our power is going to use it wisely. It has to be our power that we use for the sake of the great song for the sake of the song singing through us. Maybe that's why uh, the last time I saw Ma Fran alive, I was going back in the garden to work and, and I have a little cottage where I write in I, and we had a long last hug, and he said, I think this is the happiest day of my life. Because you see, we had seen, I mean, we mustn't idolize this young guy. But he said, it's you who've done this. He, all the time, he turns it back to the people. And if he forgets, you remind him. He has said all along, Barack Hussein Obama, that he's there, that it's our power. Don't you let him forget it. Thank you. Well, Joanna, you, you must write up that ritual. It'll, it'll be a bestseller <laughs> in many languages. What year was it that you did that? Uh, it was Francis? in uh, 1997. Then we repeated it each of the following mm. Mm -hmm. weeks in a season. But it's that first yeah. one that's riveted in sure. my mind. It's powerful. It's so important. 
and so needed. Things have gotten worse in institutional religion since 1997, <coughs> believe it or not, if that's possible. My, my intuition this afternoon was to talk about two topics, and they certainly um, flow uh, from what Joanna just shared with us. Uh, because one thing I want to talk about is creativity. Because I think human creativity is, uh, is uh, our strongest suit. It's really all we've got going for us. <laughs> but it's also our most dangerous, our most dangerous uh, uh, weapon. It's why we've taken over the planet in 100,000 years and no other species has ever come close. And it's also why we're at the edge of destruction of the planet because of our creativity. I met with a, a very renowned uh, biologist at Stanford University a year or two ago, and he said to me, you know, he said, we're the first species in four and a half billion years that can choose not to go extinct. <laughs> Think about that. The first species that can choose not to go extinct. Then he added, but of course, we haven't made that choice yet. <laughs> Which is, I think, what, what Joanna's and Fran's whole life has been about, to wake us up uh, so that we, and not just wake us up, but empower us with skills, such as the story she just told. And notice how that, that whole story of, of taking on the, the demons in the shadow and uh, owning our own responsibility for it, too, of mistaken organized religion, what a creative uh, theater that was, you see, that uh, Joanna uh, and, and, of course, the, the uh, Council of All Beings is that way, too. Uh, this is moral imagination at work, using imagination for moral awakening and empowerment and uh, criticism. So I, I want to talk more about creativity, but before I get into that, I want to kind of um, spin off from the wonderful work that Jennifer um, um, and her Evelyn. Evely, uh, we did at the end of our, our morning session, um, that beautiful song we sang together, that prayer we sang about praise. Uh, I, I want to say a few words about praise because uh, praise deserves to be praised. <laughs> One of my approaches to spiritual terminology is to ask, what's the opposite? So, for example, if you want to know about justice, spend a little time with injustice. It's something that kicks you right in the gut, right? That is your first clue about what justice is. Justice is not some abstraction. It's not a, a perfect definition about balance and fairness. It's a response to being kicked by injustice in the third chakra, where we feel moral outrage and we are where we also feel our centering and our uh, capacity to be strong and to respond appropriately. So I just want to throw out, what is the opposite of praise? I, I suspect there, there are a number of opposites. Obviously, curse is an opposite. But I think um, not noticing you know, um, uh, being indifferent, taking for granted is a profound opposite of praise. Taking for granted. And that's what we really can't afford to do. I think this is why so much meditation comes back to breath. Every breath is a gift. I always say, if you've been present for the birth of a baby, 
the very first breath. You know how sacred that breath is. And if you're present for someone's dying, you know how sacred that last breath is. Why is it, in between, we take every damn breath for granted? (laughs) Unless you learn something about meditation. Meditation is about honoring, praising, not by talking, but by um, putting yourself in the presence of and accepting the gratuity of a breath. It's so amazing that our lungs are just perfectly designed to take in a breath, clean it up, and exhale it. And in the process, clean your blood as well. It's a good deal. It's two for one at least. (laughs) All these daily miracles are going on. You know, Einstein once said, there are two ways to live your life. As if nothing is a miracle or as if everything is a miracle. It's all you got. You got to make a choice, you know. And the truth is, the more you get into this, it's all miracle. It's all miracle. And, um, and that's, that's what we praise, the daily miracles. In fact, I did a conference recently, a year or two ago, at a science, on a science group, and the theme, believe it or not, for three days was miracles. And um, I talked about in the modern age, we've been misdefining miracles. Because nature was so uh, frozen, and so reduced to mechanical uh, engineering in the modern age. Religion thought, well, what miracle is, is interfering with nature, some kind of zap. (laughs) Ah, we're going to change nature like that. There'll be no death, there'll be no sickness. You know, we we missed the whole point, you see. The The real miracle of life is life. The really miracle of existence is existence. And, uh, you know, reaching for some other uh, zazm that's going to interfere with the ongoing uh, realities of nature, I think that's, that's very often missing the point. So um, um, there's a, a wonderful line from Rumi about praise. And... Um, I want to show you that, that little, very little phrase. By the way, in my, this is in my, my most recent book on the sacred masculine. Uh, well, it's my only book on the sacred masculine, but it's my recent book. <laughs> but you'll be happy, and what could be more fitting, on the very same page, I'm quoting Francis of Assisi. So let's begin there. He says, Most high, all-powerful, all-good Lord, all praise is yours, all glory, all honor, and all blessing. So that's how he begins his canticle which is an entire uh, litany of praise. And, of course, he goes into uh, Brother Sun and Sister Moon and so forth. But um, it's in this context that I bring forth Rumi, who says, your depression is connected to your insolence and refusal to praise. Hey, folks, throw out all, all the... Prozac. Prozac, thank you, exactly. <laughs> throw it all out, folks. Praise is much cheaper. (laughs) And you can get on with living. Your depression is connected to your insolence and refusal to praise. Whoever feels himself or herself walking on the path and refuses to praise, that man or woman steals from others every day. That person is a shoplifter. So we are thieves. We are thieves walking through life 
if praise is not always on our lips. We are stealing time. We are stealing place. And we are stealing the gift of the ancestors. All of them, the human and the more than human, who have brought us to this moment after 14 billion years of struggle and celebration. We're stealing, and we're stealing from the future generations. Because if we're passing on depression, we're stealing from future generations. Obviously, Fran and his relationship to his 11-year-old grandson, you know, was not passing on depression. <laughs> they had something else going. <laughs> so I just want to honor, you know, Jennifer honored Joanna and myself as teachers of hers, and I, I accept that, that honor. But I want to honor her work. And um, it's a beautiful thing to be a teacher and to, what should I say, see the students uh, do good in the world, <laughs> make good. <laughs> and her work is so moving to me, so powerful and so real and so authentic. And it always has been. Every, every concert I've heard her do and every record of hers I've seen, it's just, it's just um, well, it just proves that relationships are miracles. <laughs> They're magic. The teacher meeting the student, the student responding to the teacher and putting on her wings, his wings, and doing their thing. It's all magic. And we're certainly not in charge. Thank God. <laughs> so um, it, it's a moving thing to, um, to be present for the next generation, caring um, wisdom, uh, carrying the lineage in fresh ways and with beautiful music and beautiful, powerful poetry and all that flows from that. And truly, as I told her afterwards, she was playing the priest's role. She was a priest here. And, and just that whole dimension of seeing um, uh, women uh, lead us and lead us to transcendence and, and beyond and, and doing in a context that's literally fun. You know, it's not about beating ourselves in the basement, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so it's important that we, we teachers and then we elders that we praise um, as we see um, generations of others come into their, their nobility. And, and their responsibility. And, uh, and Jennifer is, is just her life alone this far. She's still a kid. <laughs> has, has touched so many people. So many people. And uh, it continues to. And so I, I, want to, um, I want to say thank you for that. <clears throat> then um, an, another thing that struck me with that last prayer we had at the end of the morning uh, was the whole thing about... Um, Pray, we praise the world because um, it, it's, it struck in me a, a, an echo of an amazing uh, speech that was given by um, uh, Derek Walcott, a Caribbean poet who won the Nobel Prize for Poetry in 1992. And in his acceptance speech, he had this one sentence that absolutely, I, I've been quoting it since 9-11 because I think it's the antidote to building a, a, a culture of fear. 
and a politics of fear uh, that we've had far too much of for at least eight years. And here is his wonderful line. He says, the fate of poetry is to fall in love with the world in spite of history. <laughs> the fate of poetry. And of course, I would substitute for that the fate of any art, whether it's poetry or music or dance or theater or film or writing. The fate of art is to fall in love with the world in spite of history. Now, we were singing praises to the world, you see. This day is about praises to the earth, you see. And the earth is the world. The earth is, is not human history as such. You see, so the distinction between history and world is sometimes very important to recognize. Sometimes. It's like the distinction between organized religion and spirituality. The, the idea would be, the ideal would be if you could unite them, and there have been such moments. But uh, we have to be stark and blunt about the division, such as you created that ritual to, to observe. But um, the fate of poetry is to fall in love with the world in spite of it. So no matter what humans are doing to humans, the world itself contains its own sacredness, its own beauty, and its own deep lovability inviting us to fall in love. Now, I believe with Fran and, and you that Tuesday was a very special day where, where history and world came together for a, for a brief moment in our imaginations. And that we feel that we can work with new leadership to create a much more um, worthy country than we've, than we've had of late. So um, again, I don't see the divorce as necessary or forever. But um, I think that what Derek Walcott is saying that so echoes what we prayed together this morning, the coming together of um, the falling in love comes first. And notice he says the fate of poetry. He doesn't say the duty. The fate is built into things. It's already done and decreed. That falling in love with the world happens through art. And that is, of course, what wisdom is. Wisdom is a lover. And Hildegard of Bingen said that uh, there is, there is um, wisdom in all creative works. There's wisdom in all creative works. So as we get into the, the practice of creativity, as a spiritual practice, as we get into that practice, wisdom comes right in the door. Think about it. The wisdom of creating this, and you did it spontaneously, this circle to, to address the, the uh, mistakes of, of organized religion. You see, a creative act. And there's wisdom in that. And so um, the return of wisdom requires an awakening of creativity. And to put it the other way around, when we deaden creativity, we are deadening wisdom. And we, we get stupid. And we get stupid, <laughs> right. And we run on knowledge alone. And that's what's killing the earth. As, as Thomas Berry says, most of the destruction of the, of the earth is happening at the hands of people with PhDs. So it's not people who lack knowledge, but people lacking wisdom. So, um, yeah, and we get stupid, really stupid. So um, I, um, one thing I've been doing um, lately is working with inner city kids. Um, to try to reinvent education from the inner city out. 
because I feel, first of all, that education really needs reinventing, profoundly so. And I'm not alone in that. The Dalai Lama says education is in crisis the world over, which makes me feel quite comforted, actually, that it's not just an Oakland problem or an American <laughs> problem. It's a species problem. Our whole species is in chaos because we're coming out of the modern era and we've not thought through the forms for this postmodern time, which includes bringing forward the wisdom of the pre-modern peoples. Because, you know, parents and cultures and villages have been educating kids from the get-go. And they did it without Xerox machines and, and without desks for hundreds of thousands of years. And so there are many ways of doing education. And we have to wake up to that. I was uh, lecturing a year ago in Napa on education, and this woman came up after she said, she said, I'm a great teacher, I love teaching, and I'm quitting. And every good teacher I know in my district is quitting. Because what we know is that whatever teaching is, it doesn't mean you're, you're running a factory for exams every month, every month of the term. So no child left behind is not only leaving children behind, it's leaving even our best teachers behind. And I think the essence is because it's leaving creativity behind. One of our inner city kids uh, last term said to me, he was, he's a senior, African-American fellow, and he said, you know, he said, this is the first time in four years of high school that anyone has ever asked me to do anything creative, to come forth with any of my ideas. So we have them creating DVDs and so forth, and, um, uh, uh, and, and, and we have a built around what I call the 10 C's to balance the three R's. <laughs> so the 10 C's are, are cosmology and ecology, knowing our place in the universe, contemplation, knowing how to calm that reptilian brain, find some stillness, <laughs> creativity, compassion, community, critical thinking, um, uh, celebration and, and, uh, and rituals, uh, celebrations and creating rituals, um, uh, courage, and a few more other C's. But that's what we give them as, as, uh, as stuff. And then they relate it to their particular interests. For example, one kid wanted to learn to do graffiti. And, um, and uh, so he, oh, chaos is one of the C's too. So we got him some, uh, some canvas, and he created this marvelous graffiti uh, of chaos, you know, the word chaos. And, and what was really neat was that he filmed it. Now, no one's ever seen graffiti being, being done before. It's always done in the dark and under, you know, when no one's looking, you know, under the radar. So it's really amazing, this little film he made. Here's a guy giving birth to a piece of graffiti. It's marvelous, you know, and it has meaning. And they, they had to get up at the end of the term then and explain, you know, how this, what about chaos, etc. And these kids, by the way, these inner city kids, they have PhDs in chaos. They do. They do. Believe me. I mean, in, the, in one term, we had about 14 kids. One of them was um, hit with a gun and uh, never returned because he was so badly damaged, and the other was, was uh, stabbed with a knife, etc. He was badly damaged. Not one of them lives with two parents. Very few live with even one parent. It's just amazing the, the capacity of the human being to survive. Yeah. And, and that's creativity, and that's why so many um, inner-city kids have such a um, 
a, a powerful imagination. All kinds of studies have shown that the most creative kids in America, teenage kids, are inner city kids. And, and, uh, and they keep going and redoing these studies because they don't believe them. <laughs> they think, oh, they don't have swimming pools in their high school. They don't have PhDs teaching them. They don't have orchestra. They don't have this. No, but they've got their wits. It's creative just to survive, just to get to school and back and so forth. So my point is that I think the, the door to um, awakening education is creativity, and it's so missing. And remember, too, and let's not underestimate that, this, that it is our creativity that, um, that leads us into such profound um, arenas of evil. Our capacity for evil is so great. You know, Aquinas in the 13th century said, one human being is more capable of evil, is capable of more evil than all the other species put together. <laughs> it's an amazing statement. Let me say it again. One human being is capable of more evil than all the other species put together. When I read that in Aquinas a few years ago, I got really straight. I said, wow, I'm proud. We humans are good at something, you know? <laughs> How did he know this 700 years before Stalin or Hitler or Pol Pot? How did he know that? Because he, unlike modern thinkers, unlike Descartes, who has an entire philosophy with no philosophy of aesthetics, <laughs> You've, you've undone Descartes. You've definitely undone Descartes. Descartes, is the, modern, the modern philosopher, has a whole philosophy with no philosophy of aesthetics. That's the modern age for you. It explains our ecological crisis, among other things. But the point is that, um, that um, Aquinas, being a pre-modern thinker, like indigenous people are everywhere, knew the terrible power of beauty and the terrible urge to birth it and to respond to it, both of which are acts of creativity. To appreciate creativity and to be creative are both required in a, in a community that honors creativity, and which is our, our deepest power as a species. So um, um, Creativity 101 must also be about evil, our capacity for evil, because this is where we get very creative. A hydrogen bomb is a very creative stone to throw at someone you hate, you know. And we have to start taking that apart and, and, and lay it out and say, you know, what are we doing with our creativity? Tearing down a rainforest in a day that has taken God and nature 10,000 years to give birth to is a creative act. But What's the intention, and, and, and what price are we paying, and so forth. So creativity, I think, has to move to center stage. So I want to I talk a, a little bit more about our, our creativity and our relationship to, to the earth. And um, one of the poem, wonderful poems that was read this morning from Mary Oliver talks about what we'll do with our wild and singular life. This word wildness, word wildness, is very important because I think that the wild that we experience in nature, let's say the ocean on a rough day, for example, this is um, clearly mirrored in the wildness of our imaginations. That we are a wild species. Now, we've, there have been all these efforts to domesticate us. 
The whole modern age was about domesticating. That's why we went after indigenous people. They were savages. They were wild. They didn't wear enough clothes. And, um, and they talked with the beasts. And uh, we almost defined the, the, the project, the modern project, as taming everything we could, including, of course, God. We've rendered divinity about as boring and one-dimensional <laughs> as, as possible. And only our species could do that. No other species is, uh, is, is that um, involved in, in um, deicide. We've, we've, we've domesticated our souls, we've domesticated our education, we've domesticated our imaginations, we've domesticated religion, and we wonder why we're in trouble. Now here's a, a beautiful um, passage from Thomas Berry about where creativity comes from. Wildness, he says, wildness we might consider as a root of the authentic spontaneities of any being of any being. Every being is blessed with wildness, he's saying. It is, he says, that wellspring of creativity. Notice now he's, he's put his finger on it. Your creativity, my creativity, our students' creativity, the wellspring of creativity is our wildness. And if we're not at home with it, if our religions aren't at home with it, if our schools aren't at home with it, well, no wonder we're in trouble and we're bored and boring one another. It is that wellspring of creativity whence comes the instinctive activities that enable all living beings to obtain their food, to find shelter, to bring forth their young, to sing and dance and fly through the air and swim through the depths of the sea. This is the same inner tendency that evokes the insight of the poet, the skill of the artist, and the power of the shaman. I think that is so beautiful, and I, I hope you like it as much, Joanna, because he so marries the wildness of the human, poetry, shamanhood, and, um, and, and uh, the artist. Just, it, he just, it just flows from his acceptance of the wildness of the whale and the wildness of the eagle and the wildness of the lion to find their food and their shelter and to, to train their offspring and so forth. There's one thing going on, folks, and it's wildness. And it, it is the, the source of our creativity. And to the extent that we have not made room for this in our institutions, including education, especially education, and family, and rituals, to the extent that we've domesticated all these, we are panting for breath. And the most creative thing we do is take a Prozac, take a pill, because we can't stand the dark night of the soul, because that's wild, that's full of chaos. Or we can't even stand the beauty of the world, because that overwhelms us. We haven't grown our souls, and those of our, our young ones. And that's beyond the pale. Now, another singer of wildness is my friend and yours, Dr. Clarissa Pincola Estes, in her wonderful classic work, 
uh, Women Who Run With the Wolves. She says, the wild woman is patroness to all painters, art writers, sculptors, dancers, thinkers, prayer makers, seekers, finders. For they are all busy with the work of invention, and that is a wild woman's main occupation. As in all art, she resides in the guts, not in the head. Third chakra stuff again, where you feel moral outrage. Where you feel moral outrage. What are we doing with our moral outrage? That's one of the most important questions we have to ask about a culture. And I believe a lot of what we've done with it is passive-aggressive behavior. You see, when you're not in touch with your anger, it, it's still there, and it turns into something perverse. And I think a lot of religion is about smiles with knives in the back. A lot of the stuff that you're criticizing. I mean, the violence that comes out in God's name, not only the fundamentalists of 9-11 from Islam, but the fundamentalists uh, in our own country. I'll never forget the very first time I heard this guy named Jerry Falwell. I was living in Illinois, and I was in the kitchen or something, and there was a TV on, and I heard someone say on the TV, a human being said this. Um, this person said, uh, if God told me to kill homosexuals, I would. And I said to myself, what was that? And I left the kitchen and went back in, and there was this preacher guy, a, a minister, supposedly of the Christian tradition. And I stared at this guy. He was ugly even then, but I mean, I stared at him. What? Where is he getting this? I just, you know, it was out of the blue to me. But you see, we have to examine how much violence there is in perverted religion and perverted um, uh, practices of all kinds. Um, we have to, it's part of Joanna's constant call for, for clarity and, and truth and honesty. You know, we have to release these, these demons, you know, get the, the pus to come out. And uh, I really do think that we've, we've squelched the, the natural... Um, built-in capacity for justice that we're all born with. Like Rabbi Heschel said, uh, our generation has lost its capacity for moral outrage, you see. And that's what I'm tap trying to tap into, that um, there is a place for moral outrage. Now, of course, the key is to steer it appropriately. And that's, of course, the wisdom and the genius of a, of a Gandhi and, a, and of a king, to find nonviolent ways in, to, in which to recycle this anger, this energy, which is anger. Aquinas talked about this in the 13th century. He said, nothing great happens without anger. Anger sustains you when you're in great struggle. So you want to tap into that anger. And he said, a trustworthy person is angry at the right people for the right reasons, expresses it in the appropriate manner and for the appropriate length of time. <laughs> so again, we're not in the business of domesticating anger, folks. We're in the business of plugging into it. It is a, a resource, but, uh, but we want to plug in wisely. And that's where creativity comes. It's just what Estes is saying. You know, one of my favorite anger stories is this one and, and the artist. It's a true story of Michelangelo. When he was painting the Sistine Chapel, um, first he painted uh, nude figures. And this old crotchety cardinal came in and said, you can't paint nude human beings. This is where the Pope prays. And Michelangelo said, get out of here, I'm the artist, and the Pope's paying me, not you, so get lost. Well, the Cardinal went to the Pope and complained, 
and, and said, you know, nude pictures. Blah, 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 blah. So the Pope <laughs> demanded that Michelangelo put loincloths and so forth on these figures, and Michelangelo was not pleased. But um, at the end of his painting, he's painting hell, and he puts this cardinal who complained in hell. <laughs> this cardinal comes, cardinal comes walking in and sees himself in hell, goes to the Pope again and says, and now he's put me in hell, get me out of hell, get me out of hell. The Pope says, well, I'm sorry, he said, if he had put you in purgatory, I might have been able to do something about it. <laughs> so to this day, you go to that, that painting, go to Sistine Chapel, that cardinal is still in hell, you see. So Michelangelo found a way to process his anger. He used his creativity for it, you see. And that's what all artists do, you know, that are, are really speaking to the spirit of the times. They are recycling um, moral outrage and putting it into language that will move others and will get movements rolling, you know. Can I just Please. jump in? Please. Please. <clears throat> I think your mic is not on. Mm. Uh, for those in Buddhist practice, yes, this is very important. Uh huh. <laughs> because there has been a mistake uh, in one of the teachings I love of the Lord Buddha is the uh, sources of our suffering, and they're not because of original sin or Satan or anything, but fundamental mistakes we make arising from our uh, delusion of separateness. That's so their <clears throat> uh, greed, hatred, and delusion or ignorance. Now, under the patriarchy, what they've done, you'll appreciate this, is, and there are teachers today who are defining greed, hatred, and delusion. They'll say greed, anger, and delusion. Have you heard that? Yeah. So that anger, very, very different. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anger and ill will or anger and hatred. And when you, it's a wonderful way to shut people up mm -hmm. is to make them feel that they can't experience their anger, that they don't have it. Mm. And one of the uh, bright moments of the many of my life was when in the Tibetan community, that um, is now having chanting for, for Fran. Uh, I was going for teachings that they wanted me to have, though I'm in Vipassana practice, as my root practice, when they learned that I was working with nuclear waste, they wanted me to have a particular practice uh, which is based on a wrathful form of Manjushri, mm -hmm. the celestial bodhisattva of wisdom. And this makes sense, you know, like nuclear radioactive materials are like wisdom gone wrong. Just as, mm -hmm. So uh, this um, particular wrathful form, Yamantaka, uh, is because it's just the killer of death, too, not just mm -hmm. of life, but life and death. Uh, I suddenly noticed that around this community, it's a monastery and a village of lay people as well, there were quite a few uh, rupas or carvings, forms of Yamantaka. And the Kempo, the lead teaching monk, 
of the Institute for Higher Studies was acquainting me with all the accoutrements and features portrayed creatively of this embodiment um, of the, uh, this wrathful form. So he had a rolling eyes and bloodshot and one here and he was on fire and he had three faces snarling fangs and uh, poisonous snakes dripping, fresh cut heads hanging mm. from him and uh, and in his hands, daggers, poor both, three mm. hands on each side to cut out the mm. heart of the three-pointer. Ah! Mm. And so as he pointed, he's very, so you see, and he looked at it. Oh. <laughs> so great anger, straight from the heart of pure compassion. Oh, oh beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> right on. <laughs> That's beautiful. <clears throat> well, just to finish uh, Clarissa's uh, quote here. As in all art, she resides in the guts, not in the head. She is the one who thunders <clears throat> after injustice. That wild woman is. Thunders after injustice. Then she says, If you have ever been called defiant, incorrigible, forward, cunning, insurgent, unruly, rebellious, you're on the right track. <laughs> Wild woman is close by. If you have never been called these things, there is yet time. <laughs> Practice your wild woman. Practice your wild man. But that is perfect. That's right. That compassion is not unrelated to anger, you see. It, it is perhaps the most um, sophistic sophisticated um, uh, gathering of your of your anger and outrage, you see, to put it in so, so, so wonderful a, a, a context and consciousness. And again, I think that's what the whole nonviolent movement is about. Um, and um, uh, the, 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 the prophet in each one of us, uh, called to interfere, as Heschel says, is, uh, is tapping into not only one's own anger, about the outrage of, well, of the other beings. In here, I'm thinking of the Council of All Beings. You see, the, you know, that our, our anger, this is a spiritual warrior in you, you see, tapping into your mm -hmm. anger strength to defend uh, Mother Earth and her creatures at this critical time in history, and to come up with the imagination to uh, awaken the human community that we can do things very differently, and, and, the, and, and we better because we're running out of time. And, and so are the other, many of the other species um, struggling with us. So um, uh, let me see, uh, let me share with you a brief, um, a brief insight here from, from Rumi about, uh, about waking up when he says, we must become ignorant of all we've been taught and be instead bewildered. <laughs> I like that, moving from knowledge to bewilderment. You know, I, this is about unlearning. And I think for us at this time in history, it's especially important. We have a lot to unlearn. We, we're not going to get uh, to, to our, our, our effective creativity uh, by being stuck with, with the forms that we, most of us have been trained in. 
Run from what's profitable and comfortable. If you drink those liquors, you'll spill the spring water of your real life. That's certainly something that happened with, with Francis. And, you know, your story, you're telling us Francis' story was great, but you did leave out a couple of neat things, like how he had to divorce his father. And his father literally put him in, in, um, in a, uh, like a jail in their house uh, for a long time because they had such a break because his father was a very successful businessman. And as John has said, capitalism was just emerging in the late 12th century. And his, his father ra rode the new wave. His father was no dummy. But eventually his mother had to liberate him, but he was pretty uh, ticked off at his father and ended up to saying he had no father but, but his father in heaven. So they had a real split. He had to go through that. And um, that's very important. You know, uh, there's a friend of mine, John Giannini, a wonderful Jungian analyst, uh, way in his 80s now. He used to be a Dominican priest here in California in his first life. And... Um, he, he says to me, after hearing people's dreams for all these years and so forth, he listen to people's stories, he said, I'm convinced the number one addiction is the addiction to one's parents. <laughs> and when you, you kind of think about that, you know, like even like the word pope is the word papa, you see. You know, what does, what does organized control do to tap into that weakness that we have as human beings, you know? Um, you know, we, you know, it's not about um, that we have to create ruptures with the, with the elders uh, forever. But at some point, you kind of often have to leave them behind. <coughs> and, um, uh, the, uh, and, and not just your literal parents, but I'm thinking now of, the, of Descartes. He was one of your fathers at one point, right? And you've really left, you've left him in the... <laughs> <laughs> in He's the never dust. Over it. <laughs> What's that? He's never gotten over it. <laughs> so Rumi says, forget safety. Forget safety. Live where you fear to live. Destroy your reputation. Be notorious. <laughs> I love that line. That reminds me of a line from John the Cross who says, live where life lives. I just love that. Live where life lives. You know, that really puts you on a search. Hey, where is life alive? Where is life living, you know? That's what we're called to do. Live where life lives. And if the, the church is there or the Buddhist sangha is there or what have you, great. But if they're not, move on. You know, live where life lives. And uh, that's the test. And finally he says, I have tried prudent planning long enough. From now on, I live mad. <laughs> to, to give way to irrationality, you know, to give way to, to this mystical uh, way of being uh, that Francis did. I mean, one thing we honor in Francis is his madness, that he, he really was at the edge. And, um, and, but it's a wildness that, that comes out of, out of uh, a, a journey that, that, that um, Joanna um, describes so well for us. <clears throat> So um, those are a few thoughts I have about, about creativity, that I think that um, honoring the earth for us, uh, recognizing uh, the earth as uh, our lover, is uh, also recognizing how, how, um, how committed to uh, generativity Mother Earth is. She's just so biased in terms of colors, diversity, all of it. 
And it's so amazing that we humans come along late, very late, and, we, and we're going to put everything in order. Let's see, we'll have only heterosexual love, and we'll have, you know, uh, you know, one kind of race here and one race here. I mean, we're so busy putting order into, into this brilliant, this brilliant uh, panoply and smorgasbord of, of diversity. And, you know, life is so much easier than that. I mean, that's where so much of our, our energy is going to, into putting order in that doesn't need it, you see. That, that we should get deeper into our chaos, not into our order. And it's out of that madness and out of that um, cacophony that we're going to make real music, you know, that's going to be deep enough and, to be called beautiful and not pretty. And that's going to be deep enough to disturb and to delight and to call us, like the music has this whole day, into transcendence, into, what's that line from your poem? The, the other side, to the other side. And I want to talk about the other side and, of course, remembering um, uh, what Joanna's going through this week. I want to tell a couple of stories, and I'll end with this, about my mother's death. My mother was a woman who, um, who thought for herself long before anything called feminist movement was. And I could tell you a few of those stories, but um, I won't tell you that. But I'm going to tell you about her death, because her death was typical her, and it was special, and it's about creativity. She approached death as something creative. For example, when she was in the hospital, and they told her that she, had, uh, you know, she was dying, uh, my sister came in one morning, and my mother said to her, she said, I was awake all last night. And my sister said, awake all last night. Oh, she said, I'll go get a nurse. What's going on? What's going on? No, my mom said, calm down, calm down. She said, I was awake all last night because I've never died before, and I want to figure out how to do this right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> another time she came, uh, my two sisters came to see her, and she turns, they're talking to her, and then my mother turns to my one sister and says, Roberta, she says, uh, I think you're, uh, you're, being here uh, waiting for me to die is a waste of your time. She said, why don't you go do something more important? And then she turned to my other sister and said, Terry, this is a waste of your time waiting for me to die. Why don't you go do something important? And then she said, come to think of it, this is a waste of my time waiting to die. <laughs> when is this going to happen, she said. <laughs> my mother always hated wasting time. And, and the last story is when I, when I came to say my goodbyes, and uh, I was there several days, but then I had to go back, and she was in Florida, so I had to get back on a plane. So I, I went to say my goodbye, and she said to me, uh, Tim, you know, Tim was my family name. She said, you know, I'm not afraid to die. And I said, oh, I know, and I know why. Well, she said, really, why? I said, number one, you're curious, and number two, you're looking forward to adventure. And number three, I don't remember the third thing I said, but then she said, exactly. And we kissed, and that was her last word to me, exactly. exactly. So I just want to point out that, that, you know, we're special as a species. We can play even with death. We can play with everything. That is our radical creativity. This is what the, the Western tradition means by being made in the image and likeness of, of the creator. That don't underestimate. And part of creativity is our capacity for forgiveness. You know, it's so underdeveloped. But I, I, just this Monday, Martin Luther King Day, I was part of a ceremony in a black church 
and, in Oakland, and um, I met this amazing fellow who, Japanese, he lived through Hiroshima. His house was 0.7 miles from zero point of the atomic bomb. And all of his family was destroyed except him and his younger brother. He was eight. And he's blind because of that experience. He had a seeing eye dog. And he said for years he was very, very bitter toward America. And he became part of the anti-nuclear movement, but he always set it in the context of his bitterness and anger at America. And uh, he's been living in America. <clears throat> but then about 10 years ago, he had an awakening about forgiveness. And, um, and he said it totally it changes his message, it's changed his life. He said, I'm just so much peaceful a person now before I was so busy being angry. And, and it was just so moving meeting this man and this seeing-eye dog and hearing his story. And, and, you know, how have we even begun as a species to tap into our vast capacities for forgiveness? Um, I'll never forget meeting a woman a number of years ago in Los Angeles. She's an artist. And her 19-year-old son was murdered in a drive-by killing. And they found the guy who killed him, who was a 21-year-old kid, and put him in jail. And this woman, now without her son, went and visited his murderer in jail after a couple of years. Then she went back a second time and a third time. And they became very close friends. And this fellow had had no mother and so forth. To me, it's just so moving a story. You don't hear enough of these stories. Our capacity for forgiveness. That, too, takes moral imagination to go beyond tit for tat and, and all that and to, to move into this, the other side, as we were praying about this morning, that there, there's another side to everything that's going on in this world. And it's much more open and much more, um, what should I say, thin, more delicate, less thick walls. It's, it's, um, it's that threshold. That, that, that the Celts are so good at na naming, that, that where you marry this life and the next, this time and the next. And we often forget that we're, every day we're, we're living at that threshold with every breath we take. And that's why every day we're invited to be the creative, the creative um, geniuses that we all are, the creative gifts to the world. So I think to underestimate our our creativity is, um, is to um, make things much more stuck than they have to be. And I'm so glad to be with one of the really creative prophets of our time here. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. So we'll take a break. But before you leave, um, there's a beige Toyota Prius blocking someone who needs to leave because of a family, a death in a family. So could somebody who has a beige, does anyone recognize this beige Toyota Prius with pussy willows in the windows? <laughs> okay, we've got it without having to do the license tag. Thank you. So let's say 15 minutes and uh, we'll come back.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.